Good morning, everyone. If you're visiting here or a guest here, my name's Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're continuing a series through the books of First and Second Samuel. So if you would, grab a Bible and open up to chapter 13 of Second Samuel. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'd be helpful to have one because we'll be looking at a text very closely through our time. And there's Bibles under seats around you, so you can grab one of those. And our text this morning is on page 264. So Second Samuel chapter 13. And just a note um, for all of us here. Um, tonight from 6 to 7 in the high school room, there'll be a time of prayer for the Williams family in light of Jackson Williams cancer treatment. So if you're interested in coming, that's at 6 o'clock in the high school room um, to gather to pray together as a church family for this uh, family who many of us know and love. So we're continuing in First and Second Samuel here, and this morning our text, chapter 13 of Second Samuel, is addressing a topic that affects many of us in the room very deeply. Uh, this is a very sensitive topic, and so I want to be very careful with my words and with my tone this morning. So I was going to take two Sundays to cover chapters 13 to 21, covering four chapters this morning and four chapters next Sunday, but as I consider this more closely, I realize that we need to slow down and just consider actually part of chapter 13 today. And this chapter tells uh, a deeply painful story of abuse. It's a story of sexual assault. So we're living in a unique moment as a culture where there's more speaking instead of silence. Stories are being brought out into the light. And although many have been silent about this topic in the past and still present, the Bible addresses it openly um, in several places. And this chapter is one of those places. Uh, so I want you to know why it's important that we're addressing this today and why we, we wouldn't skip over this chapter or, or deal with it lightly and too quickly. And here's a few reasons. First, because some of you um, have been carrying around deep pain for years, perhaps decades. You may struggle to find hope. You may struggle to believe healing is possible. And so... I want you to know this morning, and God wants you to know from His Word that He sees you, and He knows you. He knows your pain, and He has hope and healing through His Word and by His Holy Spirit. And so I want to know you to know that what happened to you was not your fault, and it was evil. It's also important that we address this because so many of us have so much to learn about this. Many of us are unaware how prevalent sexual assault is. Many of us are unaware of how to help victims. Many of us are unaware of how devastating it is to victims. So here are the statistics. And if you're not familiar with them, just these aren't just kind of random numbers. These are mind-blowing and, and perhaps life-changing for us here this morning to see reality. One in four women will be sexually abused at some point in their lifetime. One in six men will be sexually abused or assaulted at some point in their lifetime, which means that in a room that has maybe 500 people, a hundred of us have or will experience this. And those numbers are not exaggerated. If anything, they're far less because so many cases go unreported. 
Um, and so this is important for us to address because it not only affects a quarter of us here in that deeply personal, experiential way, but uh, this affects every single member of this church. Uh, so my prayer is that uh, we would see that because we believe that the church is like a body, right? And what happens when one part of your body gets hurt, right? When your hand, if you break your hand, your whole body comes around that hand and the whole body is experiencing the pain of grief. So we want to weep with those who weep. Um, we want to experience this, recognize that we are a body. And so if you've suffered abuse, my, my goal, my heart is to be a means of God comforting you through His Word and His presence. This morning, my prayer is that God would give you healing and hope and that over time, you wouldn't even just be on a path of healing and hope, but the Lord would strengthen you to be used by Him to bring healing and hope to others. And for all of us, my hope is that God's Word would equip us to be Christians and to be a church that's filled with people who think clearly, who feel rightly, and who act justly in relationship to this topic, and that we would be the kinds of Christians who are safe for others, safe not just for one another, but safe for friends, for coworkers, for neighbors, and that the Lord might not only bring us the healing hope um, in this life, but the healing hope of knowing God uh, forever. So let's read chapter 13 together, the first 22 verses in this story. And let's pray before we do. Our Father, we come to You open to You, open to what You have to say to us. We're so grateful that You speak clearly about the reality that we experience because You also speak words of justice and words of compassion. And so we pray that by your Spirit's power, you would give a comfort that can only come from you and help us to become a safe community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Samuel 13. Now Absalom, David, King David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes, and she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, 
Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes that she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. So she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he violated his sister Tamar. So we're supposed to feel revulsion. We're supposed to feel uncomfortable. Um, And it's the pathway to hope, which is the ultimate point of this. So we'll walk through this in four steps. Amnon's assault, Tamar's shame, everyone's inaction, and finally God's response. So first, Amnon's assault. So the two main people in this story are Amnon and Tamar. King David is their father, but they have different mothers. And so verse 1 said that Tamar is beautiful and Amnon is attracted to her. Actually, it says that he loved her, but we know that this is anything but real love. It's incredibly strong lust. In verse 2, he says he's tormented about her. He's getting sick over not being able to be with her. And one of his friends was his cousin, Jonadab. And Jonadab sees Amnon's lustful distress. And he says, verse 5, Lie down in your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So he creates an opportunity for Amnon to be alone with her. Jonadab should have told Amnon to stop feeding his lust. He should have told Amnon to forget all about her and repent of the lust that he had already, but instead he planned this evil act with him. And we see four aspects of this evil assault, and I I understand that this will be difficult for us to consider, and so I'm just going to briefly walk through how God's Word presents this. Um, It's helpful to remember the Holy Spirit inspired all of Scripture. Every story of the Bible, every part of the Bible is here because God wanted it, wants it to be here. And this means that God saw Tamar, and He wants us to see Tamar. He wants us to see this evil act for what it is. So God includes her story that we would see the evil of it and that we would hate it. 
So first, Amnon used force. So Tamar made him food, and then verse 11, when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. So this is an evil abuse of power. God gives us strength so that we would protect other people. That's why strength exists. Amnon used his power in stark contrast for, from God's intention to force Tamar to serve his lusts rather than to serve her. So second, there was no consent. He didn't ask her, you notice, he commanded, and she responded with a firm no two times. She appealed to the outrageousness of the action, verse 12. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. And then she made a personal appeal to him in verse 13. You can read this with me. As for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. So Tamar's words here are showing us the Bible's view of both the action and the one committing this crime. First, the action is an outrageous thing, an evil, outrageous thing, she says. And the one committing this crime is acting as an evil, outrageous fool. And a fool in the Bible is not just someone who lacks a measure of wisdom. The fools are often identified with people who scoff and mock and completely reject God. An outrageous, wicked man, she said. That's what you would be if you did this. And then she even offers an alternate plan at the end of verse 13. Please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. So she's saying, just ask David for my hand in marriage. That would be better. Anything would be better than this. But he wouldn't listen. He wanted what he wanted, and what he wanted was evil and awful and tragic. So we need to see as well who this is, right? Amnon is her half-brother. So he's not a stranger to her. He's someone that she knew, someone that she trusted. So we should recognize that the vast majority of all sexual assaults happen by a family member, or a friend, or an acquaintance. Eighty percent or more of all cases involve people who already know one another, like this story. So what do we do with those statistics? Well, it means that we have to have a right combination of hoping the best for those whom we know and love, while also not being naive. And it's critical that we hold those two realities together. We have to have wise practices in place to protect one another and to protect our children, even from people whom we know and love, because we want to hope the best, but we also must not be naive. So at our church, this means we always have two adults with children in those rooms. In our family, Christine and I have had to talk through just how do we think about the concept of sleepovers? How do we think about the concept of babysitting and, and who's allowed? I mean, it's, it's, we don't want to have to have these conversations. Um, we, want to, we want to assume that nothing would ever happen, but we can't be naive because we, we know reality. And so we all have to consider this. Abuse also occurs in over 10% of marriages between spouses. 
And it's important for us to know that abuse is no less a crime when it happens within a marriage. A spouse can report that to the police. She can ask church leaders or he can ask church leaders to be involved and confront the spouse. So please, if you are experiencing this, uh, please seek help. Please come to us as elders and pastors. Um, Please find us. Please contact us. We want to help. And this also grievously happens among those who name the name of Jesus. Uh, Christine and I were just watching a show recently where there was a person portrayed um, as a, you know, a professing Christian and a husband who denied the gospel by his actions. But he's a professing Christian, and he portrayed this evil against his wife, and he even quoted the Bible against his wife saying that she must submit to him to do her duty. And so I want to clearly say that that is an evil abuse of God's Word. It is wicked. And we need to recognize that together. And third, let's move uh, to what we see next is he violated her. So this story doesn't linger on details, but it says enough for us to know what happened and to see it as evil. Verse 14, he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. So that's the act. And we should just recognize this is, you know, one way in which it can look or does look, but sexual assault can happen in a number of different situations. Justin Holcomb, author of Rid of My Disgrace, describes two parts to assault. First, any type of sexual behavior or contact where consent is not freely given or obtained. That's the first part, no consent. Second, in addition to no consent, an abusive act is accomplished through force, intimidation, violence, coercion, manipulation, threat, deception, or the abuse of authority. So there's quite a a large category here for us to understand uh, what is, is happening in so many people's lives. Fourth stage is discarding. So Amnon idealized her at the beginning, and then he overpowered her, and then in the end he discards her. His lust turned to hatred. Verse 15, you can see the word hatred or some form of it's repeated four times. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. So this happened because his original love was not true love. It was selfish lust. It was not self-sacrificial, covenant-keeping love, which is real love. It was sheer lust. He treated her as an object to begin with, and so in the end, he treated her like an object as well, discarding her, throwing her away. He didn't honor her as one made in God's image with dignity and worthy of respect and worthy of honor. So after he used her, he threw her away like a piece of trash. You can see, he just says, get up, go. And then he said in verse 17, he calls his servant in to have her taken away. He says, put this woman out of my presence. And the word woman there in verse 17, um, that word's actually not explicitly in the original Hebrew text. So he he actually just says, put this out of my presence. Get this thing out of here. So he's depersonalizing her, dehumanizing her, devaluing her, throwing her away like garbage. Maybe you have felt like that. Maybe you do feel like that. 
And so this story is here for us to see that that is not true. We're to see Tamar, and we're to feel compassion, and we're to see how she's devalued and dishonored, and we're to recognize that is not true of her, and it's not true of you. You are made in God's image with care, and you have dignity and value and worth because of that. You are not an object. Uh, You are a human being whom the Lord loves, and you have worth. And so we need to see Tamar here. We see that Amnon is wrong. She is not a thing, and you are not a thing. That's Amnon's assault. So let's move to the second phase. We see Tamar's shame. So Amnon did not just abuse her body. He assaulted her dignity. He damaged her physically. He damaged her emotionally. He damaged her spiritually even. He damaged her socially. So just look at even the very general outline of her experience. She was trapped. Amnon sent the people away so that she was alone. She was constrained. He grabbed her and kept her by force. She was ignored. She pled and tried to reason with him, and he wouldn't listen. And then she was abused. Then she was discarded and thrown away. And so what's the outcome for for Tamar? Incredible grief. She tears her beautiful robe that she wore as a virgin princess in Israel. She puts her hands on her head as an act of grief, and then she's crying aloud as she leaves. So you also may know how Tamar felt there. You know the deep effects physically, you know the deep effects psychologically, emotionally, even spiritually, the damage that that kind of act can do. The memories can linger through a lifetime. A victim's self-image can be destroyed and take a long time to be rebuilt, and the result can be fear and anxiety, depression. But Tamar's story and the story of uh, many of us in this room, men and women, shows that we are not alone. You are not alone. And so this leads us then to the third movement of the story. Everyone's in action. In action. Meaning, nobody does anything. So what did Tamar need? She needed compassion and she needed justice. Tamar needed someone to come alongside of her and tell her that it was not her fault. She needed someone to tell her that they loved her, that she has dignity and worth and value in their eyes and in God's eyes. She needed someone to tell her where she can find hope and healing from God. She needed someone who would listen to her. She needed someone to hear or to tell her that she was safe now. But what happened to Tamar? She got none of that. The two men in her life who should have responded well failed. So first, how did David respond? Verse 21, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. What does he do next? Nothing. Seems like this is written in an intentional way so that we see the injustice of his silence. This is a further tragedy in her story. Nobody listened. Nobody helped her. And David, as the king, he could have enforced the law. The Mosaic law had guidelines from God for how to enforce and protect, enforce the law and deal with these situations. And these laws were given in order to protect women. So the law said that if this happened to someone who was 
uh, engaged to be married to someone else, or was not engaged to be married to yeah, engaged to be someone to marry else. Sorry, if this happened to someone who was engaged to be married to someone else, then the person who committed the crime uh, should die. This is Deuteronomy 22. So it's a capital offense, which means that God Himself decreed laws to show that this sort of evil offense should have the greatest possible consequence. God hates this sin so much that it deserves death. There is no greater consequence in God's way of dealing with people. But Tamar wasn't engaged to be married, and so the law had um, a different command given for people in her case, and that too was given to protect women like her. It was modified for the sake of protecting women in her situation. So the law said that if this happened to an engaged person, the perpetrator is to die because that woman would be still be married and safely protected and provided for for her life in that culture. But someone, a woman who is not engaged to be married, if this happened in the way that that culture works, she would have been ostracized with uncertain hope for her future, whether she'd have provision or protection or care at all in her life. And so the law said that if this happens to someone who's, who's not engaged, then the one who did it must pay a fine, he must marry the woman, and he must never divorce her. In other words, this was to protect a woman like her so that she wouldn't be an outcast, so that she would have a husband, so that she would be provided for for her whole life. And so this is why uh, Tamar appealed to Amnon the way she did. Do you remember after the act, he was going to send her away, and she said, that would be worse than what you even just did to me. Wasn't that surprised me as I read that? She doesn't want to be sent away because she wants the law to be enforced for her own sake, for her own provision, for her own future. And so David should have enforced the law. Amnon should have been treated as someone who committed a crime equivalent to a capital offense and that the only reason he should stay alive is to provide for her for her whole life. But David didn't do it. He didn't do anything. He didn't comfort her. He didn't pursue justice. He just got angry. And in our society, we have been too much like David in our silence and in our inaction. Have we listened to victims? Have we shown compassion? Have we set up processes for justice to be done? Have we confronted perpetrators? Have we taken action to do everything we can to prevent this from happening to victims? Well, what does her brother Absalom do? Verse 20, you can read it with me. Absalom said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. So he tells her to move on. Don't be so bothered. Forget about it. As we read on in the story, we see that from this day forward, Amnon actually, or Absalom did actually plot to kill Amnon, and in two years he succeeded in killing Amnon. But because he took matters into his own hands, that was murder, not justice. So the two men in Tamar's lives both respond wrongly, adding tragedy to tragedy for her. They didn't give her gentle compassion, and they did not act for proper justice. And these are two reasons of many others why so many 
situations like this go unreported. Victims do not believe that they will receive comfort and compassion or justice. So let's move finally to God's response. Where is God in this story? If you look, you won't see His name. He's not mentioned in the whole chapter, so where is He? No one has compassion. Will God show compassion? No one brings justice. Will God bring justice? Many of you have, from the, the core of who you are, asked versions of those questions. And the answer to those questions is yes. God does have and show compassion. This is actually why we're able to read this story this morning. God saw Tamar, and God included Tamar's story in the Bible so that generation after generation after generation after generation would see that as evil and hate what happened. He included her story in the Bible to honor her. He honors her by showing every generation how pervasive and how evil this is. And He gave us this story so that we would act to honor rather than discard them. So God shows compassion and God will bring justice. This story even reminds us that God is a God of justice because this is the unraveling of the kingdom of Israel right here at the outset of it. In the previous chapters, David has fallen into tragic sin of his own, and then now the next generation is, is unraveling morally, even as a judgment um, over the sin of David. God does not let sin go unpunished, but this doesn't mean that every sin will be punished right away, so we don't see Him acting to bring justice to the sins that were committed in this story yet. So even now, we have to wait for His final judgment. When Jesus returns, every single sin will be accounted for. Every single sin ever committed in human history will either be judged in Christ on the cross for all who take refuge in Him, or will be punished in hell forever. Every sin will be punished. And so we wait for Him. So God shows compassion. He will bring justice. And because we long for true compassion… And for true justice, God helps us see how desperately we need Jesus through this story. One of the reasons this story exists is to show us um, and to affirm for us and to cultivate in us a deep longing for Jesus. So step back with me a minute from this story and think about where this fits in the Old Testament and the larger story that's unfolding here with Israel. Step back and consider the book of Judges. So Judges came before First and Second Samuel, and it described this period where Israel didn't have a king, and it was moral anarchy. There's a repeated theme, and there's stories just like this one throughout the book of Judges. It was a, an incredibly terrible and tragic uh, season of Israel's life together. And the, the book of Judges ends with a repeated refrain. It says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. And that prepares us for First and Second Samuel because First and Second Samuel exists to answer the problem of judges. When you have a world filled with stories like this, what do you need? When everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes and there's no justice in any kind of government system even to be enforced, what do you do? That, the theme at the end of Judges points to the hope. There was no king in Israel in those days. So we're waiting for a king. And now we finally have David. We have the king after God's own heart. We have the king that Israel needs. But now what do we see? Uh, we see the book of Judges repeated. 
In other words, David is not the answer. You can have the greatest human king, and it still goes back to the judges' era, moral anarchy and tragedy. And so, the refrain at the book of Judges then continues. Uh, David is not the answer to the problem, which means that the great need is not just for a king. That was the need at the end of the book of Judges. We need a king. Now that we see that Israel had David and we're, they're, they're plunging right back to where they began, the longing is for the king, not just a king. We ultimately need Jesus, not David. So this story is an illustration of what happens in a world when we have a king or a president, even as good as David. This evil will not be fully eradicated without Jesus. And so we look to Him. We look to Him to empower us today as His people to work for gentle compassion and true justice. And we look for His return when He will finally bring ultimate justice into our world and set everything to rights. So if you have experienced abuse, Jesus, in His cross and in His presence by His Spirit, show you where to find comfort and hope and healing. Because Jesus gives His grace, and His grace is the only thing powerful enough to remove your disgrace. So let's consider Jesus. He can sympathize with you right now in your pain. He has experienced shame, the shame of the cross, publicly exposed and ridiculed. He has experienced disgrace. He has experienced betrayal when Judas turned him over. He experienced injustice as the government wrongly condemned him. He experienced violence as they hit him, they beat him, and crucified him. He experienced loneliness as all of his friends abandoned him. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he experienced humiliation as he was publicly held up on the cross. And now he's risen, and he's ascended to heaven but he is not aloof. He now, with a physical human body and physically felt emotions, feels for you. And he weeps with those who weep. He is a sympathetic friend and a sympathetic high priest, as the book of Hebrews calls him. He knows what we experience, and he has sent the Holy Spirit as a comforter for us. And so this means that he can give grace that can remove your disgrace. He does this by giving you His one-way love. That's what grace is, right? Grace from God is one-way love. Uh, the assault that Tamar experienced and perhaps you have experienced was one-way violence. Disgrace came one way to you. And God's grace is one-way love. Coming to you to heal and to comfort and to restore your dignity, to affirm that you did nothing to deserve that. And you do nothing to deserve His grace, and He gives it. So you may feel unheard, maybe because you haven't told anyone, or maybe because when you did, nobody really listened, or because justice has not been brought to the one who did that to you. And so Jesus sees you. He hears you. And He will bring justice in the end, perhaps in this life. If not, then in the end. You may feel unloved, deeply unloved, and the gospel shows that you are deeply loved. You may feel like you know you're loved, but you don't feel like you're loved. Uh, 
And Ephesians 2.7 says that the reason why God saves you, the reason why God makes people alive by giving them a new heart and, and bringing faith about in their heart, the reason why He does that, Ephesians 2.7 says, is so that in the coming ages, age upon age upon age in our eternal future, He might show you the riches of His kindness of, in grace in Christ Jesus. So this is why God rescues, so that we're on a journey. We're on a journey of discovering just how deep God's heart is. We're on a journey to find out just how much compassion He has, just how much kindness He has. And so we can be patient and know that it's coming. Even if you don't feel loved now, the Lord has rescued you as you trust in Jesus so that age upon age and upon age, one wave after another, He can convince you that He loves you more than you could ever imagine with an infinite heart of love. You may feel rejected, and Jesus shows that you're accepted in Him. You may feel angry at injustice, and Jesus says He will bring it. He may bring it to the perpetrator in this life, or He'll bring it at the end. So the gospel shows us, really, the answer to Tamar's question, where could I carry my shame? Where can I carry my disgrace? Um, and you can bring it to Jesus. So how do we respond to this story? Here's seven responses. First, this story is for everyone. This story exists in part so that we would hate abuse and assault. This story is here to show us how terrible it is and how pervasive it is. And this story is here for us to hate that David only got angry and then did nothing. It's here to help us hate the passivity of those who are supposed to help bring compassion and justice to victims. Second, for those who have been victims, Jesus invites you. Jesus welcomes you to come to Him to find rest for your soul. He invites you even right now. Perhaps you have kept your distance from Jesus and you've never known Him as a friend or a Savior or a King. And this morning, He opens His arms to you. And this very day, you can come to Him and take a step. It may feel like just a little speck of faith is all you can muster, and he says, that's enough. Trust me. You're made in God's image, and therefore you have dignity. And so, if you are a victim, uh, what happened to you was wrong, and it was not your fault, and it was evil. It should not have happened to you. Here's a note from a book called Rid of My Disgrace, I mentioned before, for you. What happened to you is not your fault. You are not to blame. You did not deserve it. You did not ask for this. You should not be silenced. You are not worthless. You do not need to pretend like nothing happened. Nobody had the right to violate you. You are not responsible for what happened to you. You are not damaged goods. You were supposed to be treated with dignity and respect. You were the victim of assault and it was wrong. You were sinned against. And despite all the pain, healing can happen, and there's hope.
So what happened to you is not your identity. Um, It's part of your story, and you don't need to pretend like it wasn't. But it's not your whole story, and it's not the end of your story. You don't need to pretend like it didn't happen, nor do you need to let it consume you. There is a path of healing that acknowledges the pain as deep as it goes and also walks ahead in new life with Christ. So this path of healing is not meant to be traveled alone, so I encourage you, tell a friend, a trusted friend, contact an elder or a pastor to begin a process of healing. You can contact our counseling pastor, Eric Bobbitt. Um, His contact information is on the website. And a resource to help you I would commend is the book I just quoted from, Rid of My Disgrace by Justin Holcomb. Um, We'll have copies available next Sunday. I'll also send a link in our next e-newsletter with some resources. Um, So third, for those of you who are guilty of abusing, uh, you need and you can have God's forgiveness. Jesus died for all of our sins as we take refuge in Him. On the cross, Jesus bore wrath for our sins. So where your sins are many and they are grievous and they are evil, His grace is greater. And He has mercy for you. And Jesus too invites you, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. But you must repent. God's grace comes to those who repent and trust Him. And repentance means taking full ownership for what you have done and for your sin. It means that you own your sin no matter what the consequences, even consequences socially and legally. So you need to repent to the Lord and you need to repent to whoever you have hurt and wronged. And you need to open yourself up to whatever consequences might come. Fourth, practically, uh, if someone comes to you and shares about an experience of sexual abuse, here are four things to do. And these are critical. Four of many, but four things that we all should be, this is a moment to equip us, right? Because this is not just about uh, listening to a sermon or or working through this alone, but we want to be a, a community that helps one another and is God's instruments in His hands to help bring healing to one another. So here's four things to do. First, listen to them. Do not minimize what happened. Do not judge them. Do not blame them. Listen. Second, love them. Affirm to them that they are deeply loved by you and that they are deeply loved by God. Affirm that in Christ they have His one-way, irrevocable love. Third, offer to be with them. Offer to go with them to report the issue so that they're not alone. If, If it's one of your children... Be an advocate for them. Make the calls. Take initiative to own the restoration process for them. Fourth, encourage them to find help. Encourage them to reach out to another trusted friend or a pastor or a counselor or a law enforcement officer or a trusted friend. And again, offer to go with them. So, fifth, not fifth in that list, fifth in the bigger list. For those who have leadership influence in institutions, so if you're in any kind of leadership or influential role in a church or a business or in the government or in a school, we should be grieved by many in leadership who have not dealt with these problems. They have not tried to prevent problems and they have not 
created a culture where it's safe to bring problems out into the light. And so leaders should respond to abuse with courageous action. Uh, The abuse should not be ignored. They should not be forgotten. They should not be dismissed. So leaders, this is going to, this is not going to be an easy path, uh, but it's one that God's Word would call us to take, that we must take. It most honors God. So we should not, as Christians, right, we should not wait for the media to expose more. We shouldn't have to have this cultural moment to take this seriously. Um, So six for parents. Um, Teach your children often that they are made by God with dignity and value. Tell them all the time that they're made, I'm sorry, they're made with dignity and their bodies have dignity. God didn't just make our souls, He made us embodied people and we're going to be living in bodies forever. And these little bodies are precious and they can know that, that God made all of them So tell them often and tell them early the proper names for every part of their body so they have language to use to tell you if there's a problem. Uh, Teach them that they should always say no when they're uncomfortable and that they should do that. It's right to do that. They can do that. Invite them to tell any secrets with you. They should not, there should be no secrets in a family. And if anyone tells your child a secret, you say, you tell me and you won't be in trouble. And uh, report anything you hear uh, of abuse or suspicion of abuse. One great resource to read and reread with your children is called God Made All of Me by the Holcombs. There's a few copies on our center table. We'll have more next week. I'll send the link. So it's called God Made All of Me. It's a great resource to just have these conversations with your children. Finally, uh, for our whole church, um, let's cultivate an environment and each of us take take the responsibility and the privilege to cultivate an environment of compassion, to cultivate an environment of safety, to cultivate an environment of using strength for, the, for protection, treating one another with dignity and respect and honor. And we do this because we, we are people who have received God's one-way love in Christ. Let's pray now together. Our Father, we thank you that you are who you are, that you are good and everything good comes from you. We thank you that you bring us one-way love to heal us from all of our pain and suffering and the consequences of sin, being sinned against or sinning. We thank you that you send the Spirit as a comforter. And we pray that you would continue to give this deep comfort that so many in this room need in this moment and today and beyond and that you would, by your Spirit's power, uh, turn hearts and eyes to see your beauty in Jesus and your love in Jesus and your justice in Jesus and your grace in Jesus. So Lord, do what we can't do. Do above and beyond what we can ask or think in our lives and the lives of our friends and family. And we pray that you would help us to be a church that more reflects your heart. We thank you for all that you have done to make us a church that reflects your heart, and we need all the more. So please, Lord, help us grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand to receive a benediction from God's Word. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through Jesus Christ and through grace, may He by the Spirit's power comfort our hearts and establish them in every good word and work. Go in peace.